Welcome to Mandy the ABA and Aditi the OT's podcast. We are two women across two time zones from two cultures, two allied health fields offering two very different perspectives. Yet we have a common goal of breaking down barriers and creating breakthroughs to promote interprofessional collaboration. Hello OTs, ABAs, OTAs, RBTs, students, educators and all those collaborators out there. Welcome to our 22nd episode with a truly fantastic personality, Bethan Mare Williams. She is from Wales in the United Kingdom. She is a speech therapist and a behavior therapist. And she's going to offer a very unique perspective on the ABA and speech world, especially using precision teaching. Uh, she's truly one of my favorite people. Not only is she so incredibly smart and eloquent, but she has such a vivacious personality and a way with words. You are guaranteed to enjoy this. So here goes. I am so, so happy that you're here finally, Bethan. It took us ages. <laughs> <laughs> because we added another time zone and lots of drama <laughs> trying to figure all that. But I'm so glad you're finally here. I've been waiting and waiting to get you on our podcast. Bethan has an amazing organization, which I'm going to give the shout out to right away. It is called uh, British Royal College Clinical Excellence Network for Speech Therapists and ABA is interested in charting, correct? Did I get it wrong? All right. Well, it, it's it's a very long and mouthy title. Uh, speech and language therapist with an interest in ABA, but lots of us are charters or people who are interested in charting, and we are either behavior analysts or speech and language therapists. And actually, that's how I met Bethan, right? Bethan, did I, how did we initially meet? Actually, I'm thinking back now. Did I just, I just stalked you, didn't I? And I messaged you randomly. I think I saw a message from you on yeah. the standard acceleration chart Facebook group and you, you said, oh, I'm an occupational therapist who's interested in charting and I've worked with occupational therapists for many years and I think they're marvellous. But like you, I'm interested in getting charting to as many people as possible. So I recall we we arranged an immediate meetup and spent about an hour and a half chatting enthusiastically. Uh, we were amazed to find each other and it's been wonderful to have this relationship with you. And I think I've already told you. I've yes, we were. I mean, I don't know. I felt like kindred spirits for sure. And as you know, I've listened to every single one of your podcasts and enjoyed them immensely. It's been like having the best mentor and supervisor and colleague by your side as I drive around Britain listening to the two of you. So thank you for that. I have enjoyed them so much. Mandy, oh, she is our ultimate nice. fan. Ultimate. Yeah, we didn't even pay her to say I that. <laughs> Well, how good yeah, for sure. So I, I remember when um, Bethan and I first chatted, we went on and on because we had so many common factors and we have an Africa connection, which actually I think, Bethan, you should just start there because I was so intrigued by your work in Botswana, which is in um, southern part of Africa. So do you want to just start there? Well, I, I could bang on forever about my uh, my background, but I won't. Don't worry. But uh, I was born in Zambia, and I know that you grew up in Zambia, Aditi. Yep. And then I spent most of my childhood and teens in Papua New Guinea, which uh, Mandy, of course, at one time was an Australian protectorate. So I did all of my primary schooling with Aussies and actually did correspondence classes for a while. Oh. And uh, I now have my husband who works in international development. So I spent a lot of time abroad and... 
We did bring some charting. I'm currently uh, supporting some colleagues in Botswana with charting. And I know that my colleague there, who has just completed her PhD, that Rick Kubina has been helping out there. So our connections as charters uh, extend internationally. As you know, we're a nice community of people who like to help each other out. That's so true, Beth. And I just, it was just a few days ago, somebody that I have met, someone that you know very well, Bob Warsham, uh, reached out to me about the podcast. And, you know, in addition to a DD meeting you, so it's like all of our uh, connections are coming together. It's really fabulous. So okay. happy to have you here. Well, it's such a small community, right? But Bethann, let's back up now and introduce yourself a little bit more. I just wanted to build our connection and then go from there. So tell us a little bit about you. Well, I am a speech and language therapist, and I have been one for many years, and um, I became interested in behaviour analysis. I didn't even know it was behaviour analysis via PECS, which many uh, of your listeners will know about, Picture Exchange Communication System. And then it just seemed coincidental that Bangor University, I'm in North Wales, uh, became the first university in Europe to offer an MSc in ABA under uh, Dr. Carl Hughes. And I went to see Carl about PECS and he said to me, you should consider doing an MSc in ABA. And I did. And it was my Damascene moment. And what I particularly got into was charting and direct instruction. Those were the things that really appealed to me. And I could see straight away clinically, they made a huge difference. And one of my children has communication issues herself. So not only could I see the difference it made to the kids I was working with, but I could see the enormous difference it made to my own child. So I became a board certified behavior analyst and I do many other things. I work for Queen's University Belfast. I supervise MSc dissertation. So I keep a hand in. I'm not, I'm a clinician. I'm not, I'm not an academic, but I keep a hand in with academic matters and enjoy that very much. And my mission is to bring the chart to as many people as possible. So currently I whiz up and down the motorways of Britain. I'm shortly about to get in my car and whiz off to Birmingham after I've talked to you and bring charting to people and make them realise how easy it is, how informative it is and how empowering it is. Love it. So tell me what sort of barriers did you face, if any, having that dual certification? I haven't faced um, any barriers at all, to be honest with you. When I worked in the public sector, I think some people were perhaps a little bit nervous about what applied behaviour analysis was. And I mean, the three of us could have a long discussion about what behaviour analysis actually is and early intensive behaviour intervention and that being just one manifestation of ABA. But I know we're not going to go there. Particularly in the public sector, it was always and still is always the chart that I go to first, because as you know, the chart is such an easy and efficient way of making sure that you know that what you're doing either is or isn't working and then you can make sure that you carry on doing it if it's working or stop doing it if it isn't working and like you Aditi you know in the last couple of podcasts you've talked a great deal about how you the time constraints you've had perhaps when you've seen clients for 20 minutes a week and that particularly resonated with me when I was in the public sector working with 130 children over seven schools 20 classrooms very wide geographical area there's no way I could see all those kids individually but what I could do was go and teach classroom assistants how to chart and for them to to record their data and show it to me when I came back and uh, that just became and still is the most amazing thing I think I've ever done professionally. Wow that's I mean and I think you told me what was it like on average uh, you've taught about 50 to 60 providers on charting? It would be many more than that. When I worked in the public sector, I was working with 
scores of scores of classroom assistants. And that would be the first thing that I wanted to do to teach them how to chart, because as I said, it was the most efficient way of making sure that we gave kids targeted measurable invent, uh, intervention. And now I work privately, so my caseload is a lot less onerous, but it's still the same thing. And I particularly, well, we could have a very long conversation about the merits of percentage-based measurement versus what it is that we do. But certainly in the field of home programs, I quite often go in to see home programs and they have what I always call the lever arch file of doom. Pages and pages of data. And I say to people, I don't understand this stuff. And I'm a behavior analyst and I supervise MSc students. So what hope do you think uh, a teacher has or, or a hard-pressed educational uh, official? And when you explain to people, the bit I like is when their eyes light up, when you say, wouldn't you like one piece of paper to record five months of data? And that's the way to get the buy-in, I reckon. Yeah, Bethan is so good. She's always been helping me with how to get the buy-in with OTs. And one of the things that, you know, just like you just said, you, when you have an OT who has that glimmer in their eye and goes, oh, I'm interested. And surprisingly, there are lots of OTs who are interested. And I think, Bethan, you and I feel the same way as far as speech and OT. There's this huge push in our profession to take data, but nobody teaches how to, us how to do it effectively and efficiently given our, our time constraints. So I found the chart a little later than you. But when I found it, and when I found out that you were using it, I think I was hounding you all the time going, how do I do this? How do I get more OTs on board? So I'm so grateful for all your mentorship that you've provided um, in this arena. And like you, I agree, it's been the most powerful tool for me in my practice in OT. I typically see students 15 minutes a week, but I've been able to use the chart to really engage caregivers, teachers, aides, and all that to help me in this journey. But I'm really interested in how you've used the chart specifically for speech goals. And I know you have some speech OT collaborative goals too. So whichever one you want to start with. Yeah, and just going back to what you say, I really felt like you, Aditi, that there was this middle ground. We we couldn't, particularly those of us who work with many people, we we were concerned about the largely anecdotal way that uh, perhaps your profession of mind, speech and language therapist and OT, recorded what it was we were doing. But equally, I think, <laughs> I'm sure you were too, freaked out about this huge amount of data that a lot of behaviour analysts take, but don't seem to be analysing. That always seemed to be, but analysis of the data, data collection can often become a purpose in itself. It becomes almost a fetish. So, I constantly have to remind my students and supervisees, the data tells a story. What's the story? Let's open the book and see what the story says. So in terms of speech and language therapists, and I think that if people believe, some do, I'm sure, that occupational therapists uh, make baskets and stools, um, a lot of people might believe that speech and <laughs> a lot of people might believe that speech and language therapists only work on speech. So we're quite pernickety about that. We remind people that speech is just one of many manifestations of language or verbal behaviour, if you want to call it that as a behaviour analysis uh, analyst. Uh, but the things I have found really useful, I mean, gosh, where to begin? Uh, I have used uh, precision teaching, particularly SAFMEDS. I know we thought we, we decided that we might talk about SAFMEDS, uh, an acronym which stands for Say All Fast, 
minute everyday shuffled, essentially flashcards, but flashcards that you measure them over time. So you're seeing how many flashcards you can get correct, as it were, within a certain period of time. So I found those incredibly useful for things like uh, vocabulary acquisition. I'm Welsh. I speak Welsh. And most of my work in Wales, I I work elsewhere now. But when I was working in Wales, 80% of my work was through the medium of Welsh. So I'm very interested in bilingualism, trilingualism. I I speak French as well. I I had a French and linguistics degree first before I got into any of this stuff. And I've always been interested in language. So SAFMEDs are incredibly useful uh, for vocabulary acquisition. I've used them with children to often in a classroom where children are poor at initiating. One of the first things I'll say to people is, well, they're poor at initiating because they don't know what you're called. They go, well, of course the child knows what I've called. He's been in my class for five years. I say, no, I don't think they do. And if you don't know what someone's called, you can't initiate. You you can't do what you and I would do now. I'm sorry, what, what was your name again? Can you spell it for me or so on? So we use it a great deal with just getting kids in classes used to the names of their teachers, uh, the names of other kids. And that in itself has been enormous because if you're able to label or tap, if you want to put it in behavior analytic terms, tap someone like, hi, Mandy, hi, Aditi, straight away that opens up conversation. I've used it a great deal for lots of other things because I've used it for money recognition, clocks. I've done several um, telling time. I've done several research projects with occupational therapists in the special schools I work in, in Anglesey, where we have uh, taken our goals and made them measurable. I think that point's really important. As a precision teacher, what you can offer to someone is say, what is it that you want to do? And I will help you tighten it up and measure it. Now, that's a great way, I think, to come to a speech and language therapist, an occupational therapist. And I was only having a conversation with one of the occupational therapists on my team last week where I said, she said, how do I measure this? I said, you don't have to. Tell me what it is you want to do and I'll sort all that stuff out for you. And she was thrilled to bits because I totally understand that overworked professionals who haven't been taught how to take data are going to be freaked out when we say you need to take data. I see myself as an odd job man, almost as if I'm in a performance. I say to staff, I'm the odd job man behind the curtains. I'm there to hand you all the tools that you need. You're the star of the show. You're teaching. You're delivering. Tell me what it is you want and I'll make sure it works well. I also wanted to mention, and Mandy and I have been talking about this recently, one of the really useful ways to use a chart is to measure um, the use of augmentative or alternative communication, which many of us know about. Speech generating devices are very fashionable, are are moving on very fast, apps like ProLoquo to go. But the, the sad truth is that a lot of money is often spent on augmentative communication, or indeed a lot of energy is put into telling people that PECS is being used, picture exchange communication, or signing is being used, but actually no one's measuring its use. So that is one of the first things that we do. If we put augmentative communication into place, we say, right, we need to measure how it is being used. And one of my first MSc projects I supervised, and this was going back 12, 15 years, not only was it written in Welsh, which I was very proud about, first MSc dissertation to be written in Welsh, in ABA, but what we were looking at was the use of PECs in a special school, and I'm not talking about specialist ABA schools. Most of the schools I've worked in have just been generic special schools. No one cares about ABA. No one wants a lecture on the technicalities of it. All they want is that you come in and tell them what works, and you probably have 20 minutes of the time maximum. So using the standard acceleration chart in three classes 
teaching classroom assistants how to use it and evaluating the use of measurement on the ability of the staff to generate more exchanges. And that was an incredibly simple parsimonious, as we like to say in behaviour analysis uh, intervention, but it worked exceptionally well. What is it that you want to do? Go and measure it. So Mandy, did you say you've worked with students in the similar capacity? Yeah, I have many kids that are, you know, not verbal or vocal. And frequently they have seen a speech and language pathologist and come with this very heavy, very big, unyieldy device, which takes me a long time to even work out how to turn on, let alone to press all the buttons. And, uh, you know, some of the component skills in some of those devices are so complex, uh, you know, understanding the difference between drink and food and having to work your way through multiple screens to get to something to request what you want. Um, and, you know, I'm talking about kids that can't sit in a chair, let alone uh, depress a button on a computer. And, you know, they've spent $8,000 on this little computer that's been sitting in a box. Meanwhile, their kid can't even point, you know, to an item that they want. So, yeah, I, I think I, Beth and I exchanged <laughs> views on that. And there are so many good things that you can do if the child is able to engage with the device, but so many good component skills that you can teach on a chart. And the great thing about the chart is it will tell you very quickly if it's not working because if you have a little kid that is, you know, highly motivated for something but they're not engaging with that device, you know there's a problem with it and um, the chart will tell you that. So, yeah, I absolutely love that you're doing that, Beth, and I think one of the things that Bob has been counselling me about um, and I think you could really talk to this topic is it's a big jump between, say, listening to a podcast or hearing somebody very excited about the chart and then finding a chart for a start. I mean, that's a hard thing, right? In Australia, I think at one point I was the only person that was actually ordering charts and they were not easy to get. Uh, I had to beg and get down on my knees and beg <laughs> to get them out to Australia. So the jump between, wow, I'm really interested in a, in a tool that has a lot of information on it. How do I find it? Uh, how do I decide what I'm going to put on it? And how do I work out how to use it? And I, I would just love to hear your journey there, Bethan, because you are contacting people in the front line, if that's a good description, teachers, speech and language pathologists. And how do you get them to the point of getting excited about it and then literally getting copies of the chart and engaging and dropping dots on that? Yeah, and I, I agree with what you say. I think there is a big difference and people listening to the podcast will undoubtedly think, well, there's some people there who are incredibly enthusiastic about this stuff, but how is it that I do it? And I don't think that there is any substitute for someone sitting down with you side by side. I yeah. mean, I have so many books in my house and big shout out to Rick Cabina. Obviously, I've got his first book here. I haven't got his second one yet, but that's on my uh, list. But you can't just give someone a book or a manual. The most important advice I was ever given when I trained as a speech and language therapist was do not give the average person anything longer than a piece of paper, one side of because they will not read it. And I remember clutching my pearls at the time and thinking, no, but it's true. They won't. <laughs> they haven't got time. They're busy looking yeah. after kids and that's what we want. So yeah. what I will do generally with people is um, I will start them off and I'm happy to share this with you with a very simple data uh, collection sheet I'll, I will demonstrate in person how we can do a timing over a minute with something really simple and I usually choose something 
Very simple. So uh, it might be how many times you can step up onto a box, how many times you can name a set of pictures of animals, whatever it is that's directly relevant to that person. We'll do that a couple of times and they will see straight away that repeated exposure improves things. So what I will then show them how to do with my very, very simple data collection sheet is I will say, right, I want you to fill that in for me for um, a couple of weeks and then I'm going to come back to you. It's really important that they take that data and do it themselves in that very simple way, because I don't believe that in, unless you are putting data that you are directly involved in on a chart, I don't think it means anything to you. So when you then come back with the chart and introduce it, I think that reduces the anxiety that a lot of people feel when they see, because they have the data. And I was doing that if I may give a sneaky little shout out myself, I was doing that last week with one of my supervisees, friends and colleagues, Maeve Lappin, who is a speech and language therapy lecturer in Ulster University and also just completing her MSc in ABA and I'm supervising her towards BCBA supervision. So she was reticent about the chart. She has been collecting data on her own children. And last week we plotted, we dropped the dots and we did her first chart. And she was absolutely thrilled to bits and said, I can see what's going on. And she said, I feel suddenly, I see what it is that my kids are doing, what's working, what isn't. And it was, it's a, as you both know, it's a really exciting feeling to you know, literally take someone by the hand and, and take them through this process and say, it looks scary, it's not, but I'm going to sit with you the whole way through it and we will do it together. Uh, as we know, one of our mantras, you know, I'm sure both of you like Michael Maloney as much as I do. And I think it was him who said, if the child hasn't learnt, the teacher hasn't taught them the same thing. If our colleagues haven't learnt, we haven't taught them. And that bit of teaching someone to be confident with a chart and read it. And, the, and as you know, I mean, I have a child at the moment that we have changed the entire program from a very data heavy early intense behavioral intervention one that was taking hours and hours and hours involved hours and hours of sitting in a little room the whole thing has been changed into one based on precision teaching we get through all the work in about an hour the child is free to be out building fires climbing trees swimming running up and down climbing frames because as you know we get the work done so fast and to go into that home and for those therapists who were only introduced to charts a couple of months ago and for them to spread out the charts on the table in front of me we look them over we make our decisions and then we go off and blow bubbles or jump around or go down a slide because we've done our work and that's so important as we know time is so important we haven't got time to waste with the kids that we are working with or similarly in a classroom, if we have our standard acceleration charts, I love being able to go into a class, which by nature is intrusive. It doesn't matter how nice you are or how well you get on with the teacher. The very act of walking in through the door disrupts the flow of the day. And I think all of us know that, ironically, special needs schools and units are the most disrupted places in the world. There's far more interruptions going on there than there are in mainstream schools. But be, to be able to tiptoe into a class, look at the charts, of course, these days, a lot of people will be looking at these electronically, but I'm old fashioned. I like a piece of paper. I like a pencil to look at the charts, 
on the wall to either smile at them, give a thumbs up to the teacher or point to one and say, we need to have a word about that. And to just get so much done so fast. And for me, after 15 years of really trying my best as a speech and language therapist, working very hard, but knowing that what I was doing wasn't efficient and knowing there was something missing, to have that, and you and I have talked about this, Aditi, a lot, just makes you just feel incredibly powerful, not not by virtue of who you are, um, but by virtue of what you know and the knowledge that has been given to you to truly make an astounding difference to people's lives. I'd just like to give you the award for the longest answer to <laughs> the question so far on the podcast to date. Uh, that was absolutely fantastic. <laughs> Goodness gracious, we're gonna, I've got to meet up with you next time I come to the UK. That's fantastic. <laughs> That is, I love that passion and that was a, a fantastic answer. And the bottom line is you said you need someone that mentors you and shows you how to use the chart and embrace, gets you uh, in contact with dropping dots on, on that blue chart. Well, I'm a speech and language therapist. We like to talk. That's our thing. But I would say, <laughs> but I would say what I always say to my students is when I'm working, I don't talk very much because I know that verbal behavior, complicated language is not good for the kids that work with, which is why I love the chart because it stops me talking. It's an SD, it's a discriminative stimulus, which says, shut up, Bethan, look at the dots and see what's going on. And I would like to say as well, in terms of having a mentor, I, I am happy to help anyone with a chart. That's what I'm about. That's what I love most of all. And as I said earlier, I'm currently mentoring former colleagues, well, present colleagues in Botswana through uh, precision teaching. And to get their videos of their work with their kids from Habarone, as I do every couple of days, is just a true delight. So you brought up a lot of good points there I wanted to go back to. There is this notion when I talk to OTs about taking data, there's this, oh my gosh, I don't want to, you know, I have 15 minutes. I don't want to spend all that time taking data. It just seems like this colossal task that's going to, you know, really take over their session. And so what you were just bringing up is the fact that, no, you don't have to change a lot of your interventions or how you do your sessions. It literally takes five minutes or less in a session. And once I tell them that, they look at me quite quizzically and go, you're not, that's lying, you're lying. There's no way. But that's the reality of it. And that's one of the major beautiful aspects of the of the chart the other aspect that I found, like you were talking about empowering, I found that it's not only empowering for me as a therapist to go, oh my gosh, it's actually making a difference. But I see that light in that child, especially when I trained students to take their own data. Oh my gosh. It's like, I'll go, okay, Johnny, look, look what you got last time and look what you got this time. And they're like, really? I, I did that? And I'm like, yes, you did that. That was the most profound aspect for me when I started doing it with students. So have you had a lot of uh, um, experience doing it with actual students? I know there's um, schools out there that, you know, teach children how to chart. Is that happening in London or where you're working? Yeah, I, I, I do it with lots of kids. I'm not just teaching adults how to do it. Um, now I'm not directly involved with children on a day to day basis you know, like Mandy I'm a board certified behavior analyst so I'm, I'm supervising teams of ABA therapists but but I love it and the 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 issue the light in their eyes I totally agree and I hope your listeners will un, will understand when we talk about when we're doing our SAF meds we'll have our piles of corrects and learning opportunities and 
The light I like is when you see a child and something goes on to the correct pile or the learning opportunity, particularly, you know, in our field, error correction is all. It, it, it is quite literally a learning opportunity. It affords the adult an opportunity to teach you what it is, you know. But when you see with these kids, many for the first time ever, they have that instant feedback, either I'm right or, oh, that wasn't the thing I needed to do. And I know it's a different topic, but I certainly see that I'm a big advocate of the use of tag teach. And I know you are as well, Aditi, I think, Mandy, I can see you nodding your, shake, you know, nodding your head, the same thing. That I, the tag, I got it. The absence of the tag, oh, stop, think it. And, and for some, you know, it is the biggest thrill ever to see that look in a kid's eyes when they're not relying on the adult to tell them all the time what it is to do. They are truly thinking for themselves. So yeah, yeah, last week I was in a school in Liverpool taking a child through his SAF meds and I pointed out we had the classroom assistant again, a generic school, really interested, teach, the teaching assistant loves it. I was able to say to him, look, this child's done 85 trials in three minutes. He's done more work in three minutes than most kids are probably doing, to be honest, in a week. And that means that you're not um, this constant fudge between leisure and learning that you'll often get in a classic school where there's not much learning going on, but equally there's not much play going on and this this kind of sludge of both. And we as precision teachers, I think, really like the fact that we're very clear and say, this is where we learn, this is where we work, then we're finished, then we're going to go and do something totally different, whether that's swimming or playing in the sandpit. And if you've got people who are concerned about data. First of all, you've got to say to them, as I say to my supervisees, we have to be here to make life simpler and easier for people. If we're not, forget it. We're a waste of time. We're just quite punishing. So you say, I'm going to make your life simpler and easier. And I'm going to make sure you have a lot more time to do the things that you really want to do with the child, the music, the drama, the art, the physical activity. So I see that as a win-win for everyone. Yeah, definitely. Um, Can I bring you back to that collaboration you had with the OT. I think it was on toothbrushing, am I correct? We've got something going on with toothbrushing at present, but the bigger projects I was involved in with, with several children, sort of 20 to 30 children in a generic special school where the OT, like you, Aditi, would have a lot of kids to see a lot of things that she wanted children to do. So we took all the targets. So there were all sorts of things for all sorts of children. So one example was a little girl with Rett syndrome where she was, we know that that's a degenerative condition and unfortunately things will usually get worse over time. But the OT had put into place several exercises for this little girl. Now, putting them into a precision teaching format meant firstly that the staff made sure that they did them every day. And as you and I know, when you look at a chart, you can see straight away what's been done in real time. There's none of this fudging of data that can can happen on standard graph session one, session two, session three. We can see what's happened. So they are motivated to do the stuff because they like to see the chart fill up and they know someone's going to come and check the chart in the nicest possible way. And the OT was really interested in that. And we were able to share those charts with her and show in the case of that child, we weren't looking for acceleration. We weren't looking at improved performance, but we were looking at maintenance of her current functioning. And the OT was absolutely delighted with that and said, this is great. You know, I've give, I've given them the stuff to do. I can see that they're doing it and it's measurable and I'm happy with what's going on. And there, there were many other things. There were children learning how to use a moon. We had a little blind girl who was preparing to go back to, she was going to move on to Braille and go back to a mainstream school. So we did a lot of 
work with moon and braille through precision teaching context, other kids with fine motor control. Those tasks that often, I think OTs like speech and language therapists often give vague targets which which don't really go anywhere. They work on uh, perhaps fine motor control, I don't know, or, or work on the, I'll use an SLT example, work on using certain sounds or certain adjectives. Well, everyone's enthusiastic for two or three days, but because there's no measurement, there's no purpose, there's no function, what happens is it tends to fizzle out. So the, the forms that the professional's given, the teacher or the, or, or the teaching assistant gets stuffed in a drawer and left. Mm-hmm. The healthcare professional comes out, how's it going? Everyone goes, yeah, great, which I always say is shorthand for, I'm not doing anything, leave me alone and never darken my doorstep again. <laughs> but everyone goes <laughs> off and ticks in their files or, or notes that things have been done. And you and I know that they haven't been done. And it's not that they haven't been done because people deliberately are being malicious. It's because there's no, there's no structure, there's no goal, there's no aim, there's no measurement. And you can't do anything without them. Mandy, I know you're very into sport and that's something that's so obvious in the field of sport. You don't, people don't just go for a run. Well, I suppose some do, but most people are training or they have a time and we need that in, in education. But equally, it has to be something that doesn't then drain people. And going back to the issue of early intensive behavioral intervention, I think a lot of that date, it's too heavy. You could never bring that into a mainstream school. You could never introduce that sort of stuff to a speech and language therapist, occupational therapist. I don't want to do it. I haven't got time to do it. Why on earth should they? So our goal is always show people how to measure, how to do it efficiently, and how to make sure that they get their work done as fast as possible so that kids in particular can be kids and get outside and play and do lots of fun stuff and not sit trapped at tables for hours on end. Wow, that was that was profound, especially when I think about sports. I didn't hadn't thought of that. Mandy, do you have a perspective on the sports aspect? I'm sure you do. I mean, gosh, I don't know how many times they have to use Bob's name, but I'm sure he's listening. <laughs> but um, Hi, he's Bob. actually, you know, one of the areas that I can't find anyone in the world. I mean, Bob is one of them, and maybe a couple of others, but there aren't many precision teachers that have attempted to um, put things like track and field events on a chart. So that's what Bob and I are working on together. And so I'm excited to see where that goes. But what I did tonight, I just when was at the track tonight, I taught my coach, who's an elite athlete himself, to use a, a clicker, which was very exciting because so I think we should have another whole episode with Bethan on tag teaching because that really changed my life. I met Karen Pryor in 2014, got very excited about tag teaching and they're a wonderful uh, group of people, but it's such a powerful tool um, because, you know, when you're working track and field, things like using blocks, being able to tag somebody at exactly the right angle. Anyway, so he's gone home to, uh, to learn tonight how to use, uh, and probably one of the few people in Australia that's using um, a clicker to in, in the field of sports. But the chart is highly underutilised in sport, in track and field, etc. So I'm hoping to change that because it can be used anywhere, even with really tiny measures of behaviour. You know, when you're looking at things like running 100 metres, you know, you get pretty excited when you, when you get, you know, 0.1 second faster. So there's a challenge in putting that on a chart. You can do it. So um, well, there you go. There's a long answer to your question, Beth. <laughs> I'm competing here. But um, I got really excited by lots of things you said there, and in particular your criticism of which I'm so passionate about, about the amount of data that many behavioralists take. But the time delay between collecting the data and putting it on a, oh, I nearly swore them, but, uh, you know, a stretch to fill graph, by the time someone senior enough can get to a program and put data on a graph 
and then analyze it often, you know, across a, a month or two months, a lot of time has gone by. And you're right, all of those binders that sit around, uh, nobody actually making any analysis because it's hard to do that on a stretch of field graph anyway. Um, so I'm, I share your passion about getting rid of those that deep data that nobody can see quickly and make decisions on because with a chart, with a little bit of training, you can learn to put dots on the chart and make decisions as you go and that's what will make you a scientist. That's what will, you don't need anything else, a chart and a pencil and your ability to put data on a chart and see what's happening. It will tell you straight away whether what you're doing is working or not and you don't have to wait for a month for you know, a supervisor to come and tell you what's happening, you can see it in the moment and you can give people enough support and training that they know how to change something when it's not working. And as you say, when you're dealing in the area of kids with that are vulnerable in the area of disability, every second counts. And so, yeah, I share your passion there with getting with those horrendous binders and looking at one chart and making decisions quickly. As you know, in precision teaching, we, we talk about making decisions every three days. If a DT and I are uncomfortable about our traditional fields of well-meaning, I, I hasten to add, I'm very proud to be a speech and language therapist. I know Aditi is very proud to be an OT, but this largely sort of anecdotal, narrative, personal perspective, the subjective clinical, if that's not the way to go, emphatically, neither is what you just described, this obsession with vast amounts of data. And if people are nervous about behavior analysis, I think that's one of the reasons. And I think it is a valid reason because your data collection system has to work with what you have to do in everyday life. And that's why I think the three of us have, uh, charting has resonated with us because we can see as clinicians how useful it is. And it's all about using our time as, as usefully as possible. And going back to Bob briefly, I dug out a paper I sent to him last night that I did I think about 10 years ago as well, where we had synthesized the use, you'll love this, you two, we had synthesized the use of, um, we were looking, we had three MSc students, we were using tag teach, teaching maths facts in a precision teaching context. And we were comparing verbal praise with tag teach. And I don't, I don't need to tell you which one came yeah. out. <laughs> no data needed, for sure. Um, you know, I, I wanted to touch on something a little different what I call the dark side of data collection. So there <laughs> is a very intrinsic chatter when an OT starts taking data. And I felt it, right? When I started taking data, oh my gosh, I've been doing things this way. I've been doing this intervention. I'm taking data. What if I'm wrong? What if the data is proving me wrong? Am I Am I ready to handle that? And there is a hesitancy because we 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 want to be self-fulfilling, right? That's especially as interventionists, as therapists, we want to help kids and we believe anecdotally even that, yes, if I do this, it's going to help. And I think therapists have to be ready for the answer. And I don't know how many are. I don't know. What are your thoughts? You touched on this a couple of podcasts ago, and I was think I was driving somewhere. Yeah, as I usually am, nodding emphatically. That that whole issue of if I take data, am I going to be found out? Imposter syndrome. Well, the first thing that I would say is that as professionals, we should. I'm not saying we all. We should be ready and grown up enough to say, well, I don't want to waste people's time doing stuff that doesn't work. 
And one of my favourite behaviour analysts, Susan Friedman, she always talks, as you're a behaviour analyst, she describes at now with Wimbledon on, as a behaviour analyst, you're like a tennis player. You're constantly on the balls of your feet, ready to move, ready to change, but you're not static. You're saying, this is what we know at this moment in time. It might be different next year, ne uh, next week. And I, I, I love that. I think it keeps you hopefully fresh and young and alive. And I would say myself, Aditi, many times I have used precision teaching and found that things I thought were helping weren't. So I'll, I'll give you a good example. Um, classic, going back to communication aids, the classic is they're often stuffed in a bag and you, the kid arrives in the school and it's in the bag and then you've got release staff and they never even knew the child had a communication aid. So with one of the children I worked with, I said, well, this really won't do. We're going to put some Velcro on the child's tray on the wheelchair and we're going to Velcro the communication aid to it and we will monitor you. So everyone in the school was used to charting. Now, when I looked at the charts, it was being used even less with the communication oh. aid Velcro to the tray, which surprised me that yeah. that was what the data showed us. So I needed to change what I was doing. So I took the Velcro off the tray and put it back in the bag and it seemed to go up. I can't explain that, but that's what the data told me. So... Yes, and we hope that, you know, people who are taking on this venture are ready for that step. But, you know, I, I do recognise that as a reality as, and something that might be hard. But equally, introducing data is great for people who are doing things that perhaps, in, I hesitate to use sort of mentalistic terms, but instinctively, clinically, that you know are great. And again, I'll give you an example. I work an awful lot with music therapists, and I know a lot of behaviour analysts are very sniffy about them, but I love music therapists. I've truly seen astounding things that they've done. And when I talk to them and talk to them about measurement, I say, look, I can see all this good stuff that's going on. You're not measuring it. So you can start really simply saying, let's measure during a session how many times the child looks at you or how many times the child makes an utterance. Now, if and you say to them, I'll sit with you and do that. You just crack on with whatever it is you're doing, but we agree on what we're going to measure record it and show that I mean they're absolutely delighted who doesn't want their work validated and measured and right. and acknowledged right. so that's been something I've absolutely loved doing with music therapists a music therapist wouldn't want to see an early intensive behavioral intervention file I can guarantee you that but a simple chart explained that they're all for that and I, I have plenty who who lap that stuff up I love that you flipped that to a brighter side. And I have an even brighter aspect is that the other thing I've noticed is if I'm working with a student on an intervention that I've done previously, and I know it works, data has actually proliferated that to another level. And I go, wow, it really works. I think sometimes the lack of data, we are selling ourselves short in the OT and speech world because we know something works, but we're not able to show it. And then once we get that data, we can really go, wow, it, it works better than I thought it did. So there's so many aspects that we can, you know, hone into to make it more positive, obviously. And, and Mandy was talking about expensive communication aids. And again, I had a child recently where uh, cerebral palsy uh, injured at birth, we asked the Education Authority for a £14,000 eye gaze communication system. That's a lot of money. I felt a great deal of obligation as a public sector speech and language therapist to justify this vast outlay. So we worked in an excellent school, uh, again, just a, an ordinary school, not an ABA school. We took data on the standard celebration chart on the use 
of this uh, machine, which we used in conjunction with Headsprout Early Reading, which is literacy and numeracy, are big, big areas of interest of mine. The child's use soared, and I wrote back to the Education Authority. I clearly didn't send them a standard acceleration chart through the post. That wouldn't have been helpful, but I translated that data into something that they could understand, and I was able to say, you know, you gave us the money for this. Nine months down the line, this child is using this communication aid 500 times uh, in a six-hour period and this many times in a week or a month. And I felt that was a matter of common courtesy and decency to let people know that their investment, that public money had been used responsibly. Gosh, yes, a lot of food for thought there, um, Mandy for sh- Mandy and Bethan, for sure. The last thing I wanted to just touch on is that data is something, you know, that can really bring transparency to our professions in speech and OT. And many of us are ready to do that. I mean, uh, people have reached out to me from various avenues asking, you know, how to take data, how to get going on this. But the last thing I wanted to mention is, is there still room for qualitative data, uh, especially in speech language? Um, Bethan, do you still, even though you're transitioning more to a quantitative arena, are you still putting qualitative data on there there will always be a place for qualitative data you know as if we look at the um definitions of what evidence-based practice is it's a mixture of qualitative and quantitative data and also the issue of your clinical experience i I would not for a minute i mean that's something that some speech and language therapists have said to me and i'm sure they have to you indeed oh what are you saying my clinical experience doesn't mean anything absolutely not and i can see this Having worked for many years, I'm working with young, very bright people, um, many of whom are fabulous charters, but you see they haven't accrued that clinical experience. When, you, when you're when you so used to working uh, with people, I'm sure like you, I can go in and I see a child with communication issues. Of course, I'm going to assess them and spend time talking to the family, but, but I can see very quickly what their issues are, what their strengths and needs are. That's what 25 years in this field has done to me. But Backing that experience up with quantitative data will always be important. And there isn't a profession in the world that would deny that. There's a great push in the field of speech and language therapy for evidence-based practice, certainly the same in education. What there isn't, however, are the tools to teach therapists how to do that. There's no good your professional body saying you need to you need to measure more, you need evidence-based practice. If they don't give professionals the time to do that, and certainly if you read a lot of um papers related to that in the field of speech and language therapy as I do what you see is people say we just don't have time we're on this hamster wheel of constantly uh, dealing with clients and keeping managers happy in a hard-pressed public sector situation so there's always a place and equally I think you and I would agree you can't put everything on a chart either the fun is to not jemmy whatever it is you're doing into a certain static metric system, but say, what is it I want to measure? And can it be measured by this? Or can it be measured by that? Quite often, I'll use a pie chart or a bar graph or something else. But I enjoy the fun and the challenge of saying, can I get it on a chart? Because believe you me, I've got pretty much anything you can think of on charts measuring blood glucose pricks, how many eggs have been laid on a farm in North Carolina, how many pounds, how many kilos my husband's lost um, counting carp. I've done everything on charts. I've got a whole stack behind me of charts on everything you can imagine. Well, yes, that's definitely a challenge. I've encountered that. The, The biggest one that I've encountered is a challenge with charting, that is, is 
how to chart internal thoughts and feelings. You know, that's been a bit tricky for me, like anxiety, because in OT, we deal with a lot of self-regulation issues with students. So I might have a student that I'm working on. Maybe they're using the zones of regulation, let's just say. And I've always been like, so how would I find a way to chart that on how that student's doing? What zone they're in? Do they just report it to me and I chart it? I don't know. Do you have any thoughts? Amanda, you might too. Are you familiar with Abigail Culkin? Yes, I, yeah, I've heard her name. Her shout out in the past. Yeah. yeah. We have uh, references on our Facebook group to her work and uh, her work on inners. Abigail's great. I've met her on several occasions and she's fascinating and she will wear lots of uh, bracelets with beads on them. And as she's talking to you, she's measuring her, her inners and she's a great friend of Bob oh, Warsham's too. Yeah. And one of my students, uh, the woman I was referring to earlier, Maeve Lappin, my supervisee, the SLT lecturer, she's planning her dissertation at present and she is very interested on doing a project on inners in speech and language therapy students and the the anxieties that they feel, am, am I prepared for this? Can I go out and help? Um, and she, she feels that with many of her students, that's a massive issue. And she's really interested in measuring inners. But, but Abigail has been a great influence on, on things that I've done and really opened my eyes to, to what's, what's possible. Wow. Okay. Yeah. I think I've heard a name a couple of times. I think actually on uh, one of the Facebook groups, I had asked about microaggressions, um, because that's something that, you know, OTs discuss and teach a lot, how to address microaggressions. And her name came up. So we'll definitely have to look her up. Um, but anyway, Mandy, did you have any other questions for Bethann before we let her go? She's been amazing. I have a thousand and one <laughs> questions, but, I'll, <laughs> but uh, I'll hold that for another. I think we'll, if she will let us have her back, we would love to. Yeah, we would love to have you back and we chat some more. But thank you for all those pearls of knowledge. And I'm so, so happy to connect. And it, it's just nice to have somebody who's in speech, which is, you know, obviously very parallel to what OTs do, using the chart so eff effectively and so passionate about it. So thank you, Bethan. Thank you, Aditi, and thank you, Mandy, for, for having me. And may I just use this opportunity to announce that, Aditi, we've asked you to be our keynote speaker at our next conference for the Clinical Excellence Network for Speech and Language Therapists with an interest in ABA. So uh, you have accepted, and I hope that you, that you are still planning to join us in September. We're very excited about that. Oh, well, you put me in the spot. Of course I am, for sure. I'm going to have to say yes now, for sure. <laughs> no, I'm, I was planning to say yes. I'm so honoured, uh, definitely, uh, to be part of that group. I love your Facebook uh, group. So many amazing people with the common goal and from various walks of life, right? It's not all just speech therapists and ABAs. Are they um, any OTs? I, I don't recall. Do you have any OTs on there? Well, we, we, we have you and we you we made you an honorary, uh, well, no, but you have your background in ABA anyway. Um, but we, yeah, we would be happy. Yes. I know two, there are only two duly qualified um, behaviour analysts, OTs in Britain, Jill Davis and Alison Branch, and they, they work more in the field of positive behaviour support. Um, so uh, with, with adults, but, but uh, we need more people doing the sort of things that you are doing. And so we are so happy to have you with us, Aditi. You are just such a valued addition to our group. Thank you so much. The feeling is quite mutual. Um, and so, yeah, we look forward to connecting again and having you on future episodes. Thanks for that. Thank you very much for having me. 
Okay, so remember the most valuable resource we have is what? Each other. Without collaboration, our growth is limited to our own perspectives. So hashtag collaboration over competition. Until next time, bye-bye from the Windy City. And Uru from Down Under.